listening to The Adjacent Self, brought to you by the Conscious Leadership Academy at the University of San Diego. We're your hosts, Kendra and Libby, and we're going to help you explore how to step into the best version of you. Thanks for being here. Hey, Libby, how are you doing? I'm good, Kendra. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I thought that we could change it up a little bit. I didn't run this by you. But I thought maybe we could do a one word and see oh. where we're at maybe today. It's you have Friday a word. And, you yeah. have a word that came to mind for you? Uh, I would say today my word is peaceful. Oh, yeah. I'm steal a little I, bit of that from you. Yeah, I had a candle burning this morning and did some some uh, centering practice. So I'm feeling pretty, pretty peaceful. What about you? I guess if I had to pick a word, my word for the day would be closure um, because I am moving tomorrow. So I've been running around town trying to do all my favorite things before I go and say goodbye to San Diego while I have the chance. A brief goodbye and then I will come back later (laughs) at some point. And with us, we have Dr. Cheryl Getz. She, I actually took a class with her during my master's program in my last semester. I uh, had the privilege to do that. She's an associate professor at the University of San Diego. So Dr. Getz, would you feel comfortable sharing your one word with us today? One of my favorite words and the word that came to mind was equanimity. Um, and that's how I feel today, sort of spacious, joining you all. That's a great word. Yes. I always like to add vocabulary words, and that's a big one. (laughs) Yeah, adding to the list. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Getz, for being here with us. We really appreciate it. And this conversation we're going to have today about grief and um, being with the dying and your experience surrounding that. But before that, Libby... I would love to do our one breath. Yeah. So um, if we want to just take a a nice inhale and exhale, get nice and centered. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we'll just open up. Dr. Getz, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you into this new space of this work. Thanks. Thanks so much for, uh, giving me the opportunity to do this and for the introduction and definitely for the one breath. That's always really helpful for grounding. Yeah, so in 2016, uh, my husband of 20 years had a stroke and he, for about seven months, he was doing okay mobility-wise, but he had a lot of cognitive challenges. And then um, after that time, he started having seizures and he then was unable to walk or talk very much. So he was immobile. So I took care of him along with some amazing caregivers in my home for two years after that. So it was a three year long process. And, you know, he died in uh, 2018 and December, 2018. And since that time, and, and actually during that time, it was really a process of growth for me and really learning and in many ways deepening my spiritual practice and so now I've had a couple years and I'm, of course I'm on sabbatical now so I have some time too to 
really reflect on that experience a little bit more and to get involved with some different kinds of spiritual and I would say maybe leadership in a way practices that have helped me bring some of my learning together. And yeah, so I'm, this is the first time really that I've been had an opportunity to articulate all of this in, in front of anybody other than in my head. So it's a great opportunity for me too. And hopefully you can uh, learn with me as I try to respond to some of your questions and whatnot. Yeah, we're very excited to talk to you. And I think that this is a challenge and a, and an opportunity that a lot of people have. And just to be able to, to take care of somebody and to be with somebody during their last years, and especially when there's like chronic illness and things like that that come into play. I know that I have a few friends who have dealt with this with their parents and, and other family members as well. And so I guess my first question to you would be like, what was your biggest challenge that you faced in being a caregiver? Yeah, everybody asks that question, you know, and if you'd asked me while I was in it, probably have different answers. But of course, it's um, exhaustion. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I, uh, like many people, maybe in education, I, I like to be in control. Uh, or I think, I mean, there's sort of an element of control. So I had lists and roles and, you know, I trained caregivers because they were staying in my home and there were several of them. And, you know, it was tiring over time. And just when I thought, oh, my God, I can't take another step, I had to take another step. So when he first had the stroke, that was tiring, you know, and I thought maybe he'll get better. And, and over time, I realized he wasn't going to get better. So the most challenging part was really keeping my health together, which at times I was not able to do. My health suffered at different times. But I would say that's probably the hardest part was to just keep it all together. And, you know, you have to do that. That's just what you do when you're in that situation. Did you have any specific kind of self-care activities or um, practices that you did at the time? Yeah, so, you know, I'm Henry and I lived in our home. We don't have, well, he has a son, but we didn't have any children living here or pets at the time. So I was used to having a space that was comfortable in our, you know, with a, a spacious space, I would say. But now caregivers were in my space <laughs> and they basically were downstairs. So what I did was I created a space upstairs. I actually put a refrigerator, a microwave. Uh, in the space that I'm in now, I sort of turned it into a little uh, a getaway for me. Mm -hmm. And I had a chair that was in front of a window facing a mountain. And every morning, I would just have, you know, my tea and breakfast, and I would meditate and reflect. I have a journal and I kept a journal pretty consistently, or I might read some spiritual reading. But you know, that took me about a year to figure out that I needed to do that. And um, that helped a lot. And then I also, you know, I tried to get out and, and walk. So if he was asleep or the caregivers were here, you know, I could go and, and get a walk in. But I, I couldn't do that all the time because I was working full time at the same time I was doing this, of course. So there was a lot happening. But I really focused on the mornings and just taking, even if it was just the 20 minutes or half hour, just taking that quiet time for myself. My grandfather suffered from dementia for about six years, and we watched 
him mentally deteriorate and my grandmother be his caregiver until we did bring on outside help as well. And I know, I noticed in the beginning, she wasn't taking the time for herself to just rejuvenate and refill her cup. But I, I noticed as the years progressed and we were able, like me and my mother were able to step up and help more and get, get that outside help from medical professionals that she would start praying in the morning. And I noticed, like, I asked her once, I'm like, grandma, your Bible's in the bathroom. You know, like, why? And she's like, that's where I just go to sit because no one ever is going to bother you in the bathroom. But it was true because they don't have a, a very large house. There wasn't a lot of space with the people in and out for her to find somewhere. So she just made it. And yeah, it was an, an unusual area. But she was like, it was my time to spend in prayer and in just peace before I had to get back to what I had to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. And you know, the space doesn't matter. I mean, we're very blessed. We have a home where I could find other spaces, but you know, just shutting the door and you could be in a closet. It's just, Mm -hmm. just somewhere where you can have that space to just reflect and rejuvenate for those 10 minutes even. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about the challenges. What were some of your biggest learnings as you were a caregiver? Yeah, so, so this is my favorite part to talk about. Um, you know, as as you know, because you've had me for a class, and I think my students would attest to this, that I see, I always have seen every opportunity as an opportunity for learning something. So luckily for me, that was the attitude that I entered into, not just my teaching, but my own life. And, and Henry also was like that. So he, you know, a little bit about him is, you know, he was much older than I was. He's African American. Our life experiences couldn't have been so different, just very, very different. But we had a deep, deep connection around our spirituality and our way of being in the world. And his his mantra was actually just all about love and forgiveness. And so he taught me so much about that. And my mantra was just, you know, learn from the experience that we're having now. So we sort of balance um, off of each other. So some of the things that I learned, one was the importance of patience and, you know, uh, just being patient with him and with myself. And it wasn't always easy you've had an experience with people with dementia. So when he was able to walk and he had the cognitive challenges, that was very difficult because he'd walk out of the house, you know, and he would do things that he normally wouldn't do, or he'd say things that he normally wouldn't do. So that was very hard. And at times we would argue. So I was just, I had to learn to just be more patient when these situations would come up. Also, I like to be in control. And it was impossible to be in control all the time. It just sort of a funny example. Our house is pretty clean and in order, but he his, his short-term memory was gone. So he'd leave things everywhere. And I realized I had to let go of that. And then when we had caregivers, of course, I had three that were amazing and they stayed with me and we're friends now, you know, but they had their own ways of being in the space. and. I could, I just had to let go of that. I I had to let, there was something that I just couldn't control, which was really, really good lesson for me. It's helped me now to learn to just let go of some things. They're not that important. It's just not that important. 
The other thing I learned um, was the need to let go of attachments and ego. And, you know, and this was very hard because he and I were so close and we talked every day. And if I was having a rough day, he would call and give me support. And the, the story that helped me really get over the edge with this was this was when he was still mobile. We had a little argument in the morning and later in the day I called thinking, you know, like usual, I'll call and we'll chat and we'll say we're sorry and we love each other. He picked up the phone and said hello. And the first thing out of his mouth was, where's the muffin? <laughs> you know, he didn't even remember the argument. He, yeah, he just wanted the muffins. And as soon as I told him they're in the fridge, they're here, and the caregiver was here with him, but you know. He went in the fridge, he saw, he goes, oh, and then he hung up the phone. And that was it. That was our conversation. And in that moment, I was so, you know, initially disappointed and sad. I probably cried. Um, but that was the moment where I realized I can't, I have to let go of this attachment to the way that it was, because it's never going to be the way that it was. And we now have a new normal, and I need to really step into this new way of being with him, which brings me to the next one. You know, I really believe we always get exactly what we need. So, you know, those three lessons so far, patience, control, and letting go, it's exactly what I needed. I could never have learned those things by reading a book or doing my spiritual practices. I mean, this was, these were teachings that I was getting that were so present that I realized this was exactly the experience that I and we needed to have. And, you know, he, of course, we hadn't planned for him. We had all kinds of ideas about how he was going to die. This was not one of them. But this was exactly what we both needed. I, I learned to understand that. And then the final thing, among others, but the final thing I can sort of reflect on right now in terms of learning was gratitude and unconditional love. and. The gratitude that I had for him, I mean, we had gratitude for each other when we were, you know, when he wasn't sick, of course, and we were very expressive in our, our love for each other. But the unconditional love, um, you know, letting go of the expectations, letting go of thinking that it had to be a certain way and being present to the love that was still present for both of us. And the learning for this came after, actually, after the seven months or so in after he he had some seizures and then he was no longer mobile and didn't talk much but i could still feel the love and we still had this connection that was very deep and i had a lot of gratitude for that and and i also had a great deal of gratitude gratitude and an unexpected love for all the people that helped you know i learned how to ask for help friends my family is not here my family is in ohio and of course they were very supportive but they couldn't be here to to help so my friends became my family and many came over and stayed with henry when i couldn't they brought food they listened they you know it just was an outpouring of support that i just felt so grateful uh, just a lot of gratitude and something that was just not, you know, just something that was so unexpected, that kind of outpouring. So just a lot of gratitude for, for the love and care that that people showed and that Henry and I still had between us. Kind of a long answer, but thank you for asking. Two things that I wanted to circle back on is you talked about letting go 
of the attachment of what was. And I think for me, because my grandpa is probably the closest person I've had die to me or around me. And he'd been around all my life and I, I didn't have a father figure. So he was that for me. So out of my cousins, I think I was one of the ones who took it the hardest with him getting sick. And because I was in proximity of him, seeing him deteriorate, it was hard for me because he was this six two air force handyman could fix any and everything taught me how to use computers. Like he was my hero. And then for him to not be able to do those things, like even just coming over to help us with our yard or, you know, helping my grandma put things away in their storage, just those basic things and seeing him not be able to grasp that. And then he couldn't drive any longer and slowly progress. And for me to watch, like I, I still beat myself up because I would, it was hard for me to watch. And so I would not come around as much as I wish that I had and spend those moments with him where I could have had that opportunity to share that unconditional love because the times that I was there, he would stare at me and he knew who I was, even if he couldn't call me by name. And he just, he would just stare in admiration. And like, you know, when someone looks at you in that way, and I had that every single time I'd come over, but still fighting myself to appreciate like, he's no longer the way I I was used to him growing up, but I can take this time I have with him left and build bonds in this way, even though we can't communicate the ways that we used to. And that's something I'm learning now moving forward as my mother's like in her sixties and getting older and I'm helping her do things, you know, even though she can't do the things that she used to, where can I find gratitude in the time that I can help her or the time I can be around her, even through my frustration. That's a really good, um, well, it's a really good learning. And that's exactly, you know, it's, it's funny because one of the things one of my teachers asked me was, you know, what are your regrets? And at first I said, Oh, I don't have any regrets, but actually I do. It's similar to you. Um, Some of the learning that I haven't talked about yet came after he passed. And there were a few regrets, you know, and, but I realized back to, this is exactly what I needed. I could not have known that back then, Mm -hmm. just like you, you couldn't have known in those moments you were taking care of yourself and you were doing the best you can with the information that you had in that moment in time. But that was the learning, you know, it, it unfortunately happens after because that's the reflections that we have. So. It's wonderful that you've been reflecting on that. It's like a perfect segue to our next question, because we know that you've mentioned that in retrospect, you've noticed or recognized things about yourself and the experience of being with Henry, you know, really in that last year of his life that you didn't recognize while you were going through it. So are you able to kind of expand on that a little bit and kind of maybe we can go a little deeper than than what you had just mentioned? So Henry was a reader. So the, those, those are his books, <laughs> you know, wow. Love it. yeah. So um, every week there was a new book that I needed to read. You really need to read this one. And you really, and and, in, and I used to try, but eventually it just, I had to say, I can't, you know, I have to, I'm teaching. I, 
you know, I have these other things. After he died, I picked some of these books up. And I realized as I was milling around his space, this is his space, uh, his space, that he was reading some of the books that people had recommended to me, and they were about dying. And they were about the afterlife. And so I started picking these books up, and I learned so much about how to be with um, somebody who's dying, the process, and what happens after you die. So, for example, one of the things recently I did a, I'm a part of a Sufi community. So I did a retreat that was working on death and dying and, and learning how to live. You know, we're all going to die. It's the one thing we all have in common. And some people were talking about how powerful it is to be with someone in their last moments of their life. And I was with Henry holding his hand during those final moments. And the way that I had heard other people describe that experience as being um, powerful and sometimes they would see, see things or, you know, see a bright light or, and I, I was afraid to admit that is not what happened for me. I was actually afraid. I was anxious. Um, I was holding his hand. I was crying. Uh, I had expectations of the hospice nurse and that weren't being met, you know. And I had some, so this was one of the regrets. Gosh, if you know, know then what I know now from all this reading that I'm doing and these teachings, I would have done it so different. I would have been more present. I would have been more calm. And, and you know, I realized uh, after the retreat a few months ago that the, the teaching was I was with Henry when he was dying for three years. And like you, Kendra, I could see the changes over time. And when he was mad at me or when we got an argument or when he couldn't do something for himself, I stayed and I witnessed and I was present to that. And when he was no longer mobile and he couldn't talk, I sat with him and held his hand then. And when he was in the last couple days, we knew he was passing. He grabbed my hand and he kissed me. I'll never forget that moment. That's being with someone who's dying. As I reflect back now, these are some of the, you know, not regrets, but if I, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, you know, those things. But I try not to, I try not to sort of hold on to that because I couldn't have known now without him dying. I mean, his dying I believe it's a gift that he gave me. And the fact that I was able to be with him for three years while he was dying was an incredible, incredible gift. I mean, he could have had stroke and just um, passed away. You know, I, I was with him when he had the stroke and um, got him to the hospital right away. But that was the gift. That was like his final gift to me. And, you know, one thing that I learned from some of these readings too about presence and being, you know, people don't really die. Our consciousness lives on. And so he's around. And as I was preparing for his, we did a celebration a couple months after his passing, he showed up in so many ways with readings and teachings that were just on his desk or a note left here, a note left there. And, and he really kind of decided what was going to happen at that celebration. And so we did that together. And that was extremely powerful. And no way would I have learned or known that, that it was possible to have that kind of connection with someone after they were no longer physically 
uh, on the earth. So, so, so much learning. I could go on and on, but that's, that's the big part of the learning, you know, that I've been thinking about since he's, since he's been gone. I love that you mentioned that um, kind of the way that people show up after they've passed. And I know that uh, Chelsea Handler talks a lot about that too with her brother and how she'll see these symbols and she's like, Oh, I know my brother's here. Like he's here with us right now because there's this physical, you know, representation of him being here. Yes. I, I went down the rabbit hole of afterlife books. I probably read 15 or 20 of them. And um, what it did for me was um, I was a skeptic and, but it helped me understand that that's a real opportunity for connection and opening to intuition, you know, and I'll talk about this maybe later too, is that intuition is an important aspect of leadership and, you know, opening up and being open to what's around you and signs and symbols and signals and, it helped me understand that I could be in that place too. And I could be aware of when he was showing up. And so I'm very aware when he's in my dreams. I'm aware when he shows up. Yeah. I think that that's, especially when you talk about dreams, like that's something that I think that a lot of times people will dream about people who have passed on and, and either get a message from them or, something that they need to know. I know my friend would dream about her grandfather a lot when right after he passed and it was him always coming and saying something to her, like, like you're on the right path or, you know, he would always have these like really positive messages for her and, and she'd wake up the next day and she'd call me and she'd be like, I had this dream. And do you think I'm imagining, like, do you think I made this up or do you? And I was like, no, I really think that it was him. Like he was coming to tell you Mm -hmm. that, he sees your life and he sees the trajectory and he knows that like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. There's a lot of comfort and, and support. Like I, I feel, I mean, he was my best cheerleader. He, you know, the one person who tells you you're amazing no matter what, even when you screw up. So like feeling his energy and feeling his love, it's, that's been a real surprise actually. And a real, a real gift. Yeah. Wow. So with the things that you've mentioned that you've learned and noticed, how has this, uh, this changed how you look at leadership and leadership development? So, so this I'm still working with. Um, so I, I might be a little ragged in my description here. So be patient with me. Um, what's interesting is sort of philosophically the way that I've always taught leadership some really basic, for me, concepts, holding steady, being open to ambiguity and not knowing, you know, and I'm sure because that's sort of a philosophical uh, underpinning of my teaching and my life, that's why I was, some of those teachings were available to me um, throughout the process. But one is what we were just talking about, the, you know, openness to intuition. And that, that was new. It's something that I had been thinking about, but not having, I didn't have a personal experience of that. And now I have several. And so that's one thing that I think is really important for uh, leadership and leadership development to uh, become more aware of those intuitive hits, uh, possibly dreams, um, signs, symbols. You know, uh, Einstein always talked about 
his musings, you know, he would go for walks and, you know, it's not just about the intellectual pursuit of something. You really need to, to be creative. You need to sit with the unknowing. You need to sit in that space of, uh, I don't know the answer just to see what might emerge. So that's one area that I'm exploring a little more deeply as it relates to uh, individual development and individual leadership development. And then the other area that's uh, relatively new to me is this, I'm taking a class with Thomas Hubel on healing collective trauma. And I'm going to talk about it and it'll all make sense, I think, when I come back to it. But, you know, we all have some form of trauma. We've all experienced some form of trauma and losing a loved one is a form, you know, of trauma that, that impacts you psychically and physically, emotionally, socially, and, and we carry those things in our body. And of course, now we're living at a time with um, a great deal of racial trauma that's showing, it's always been there, but of course now we're, we're all seeing it's being exposed. And, you know, the challenges of, of all of us right now, listening to, the, to others who are different from us or being able to be in different spaces with others who, you know, who, who have different opinions, for example. When Henry, well, after the stroke, one of the, the most difficult things for me was him having had, being a black man and being older, he, you know, he lived through the 40s and 50s. And so he, in many ways, he says, I taught him, but he taught, you know, maybe we had a shared teaching, but he taught me a lot. And we talked about it a lot and not having him to talk to about what's happening now or what was happening in 2016. It was very difficult, a real, like, I felt a deep, deep loss there, um, not being able to, to engage. But one of the things that Thomas Hubel talks about is the importance of, so he uses a framing called, I feel you feeling me. And he tells us that, that this is part of our practice to stay in connection with others, like to do that. Like, I'm doing it right now as I'm looking at you all on the screen. I feel you me and I can feel the connection and the energetic connection between you and and me and when Henry was no longer able to really talk or, or move much he and I had a still had a very deep connection and other people would say when they were with us together they could see how we were communicating without words I knew what his needs were he knew how we just knew I mean it's very hard to describe when I was out of town, the caregivers would say, um, I would call right when he was calling out for me. Like there would just be this, we just knew we had a deep connection. And when Thomas Hubel offered that teaching, it just immediately, I thought that's exactly, that's exactly my experience. And so taking that particular teaching into leadership development, the importance, especially now, of being able to feel, not just see each other, but to feel each other and to have that, have that as a practice, I think is really essential. The other practice that he has is a, um, it's a mindfulness practice where we're paying attention and noticing our, first our physical and then our emotional and then our mental state. So our, our physical sensations, our emotional felt sense and our mental where we are mentally. And it's a, it's an actual body somatic practice 
that we do. And he talks about the importance of coherence, you know, having an inner coherence. And he doesn't say that, you know, when you notice your emotional state, for example, you might be angry, sad, frustrated, that's okay, but you're noticing those feelings. And the more that you can practice this and the more that you can notice, you have better inner coherence, even if it's, again, frustrated, mad, angry, but you have better in, in inner coherence. And this impacts how you move in the world with others. You know, so he talks about sort of self and collective as a, he uses like an uh, infinity sign, you know, that we're doing our work on our, on our self for this inner coherence because we want to make an impact on the larger world. You know, I'm not just doing this work because I'm navel gazing. I'm doing this work because it's important to me and because it's going to make me healthy. But I'm also doing it because I want to heal some of these tensions. I want to be part of healing the, the, the collective wound that we've created in our country. And, um, and for me, as a white woman, of course, I'm part of the institutional structural racism that currently exists. So that's part of my work. That's part of the healing that I need to do but I wanna do it in relationship to others. And so that's the teaching for leadership development that I'm, I'm sort of just swimming in right now. You know, I'm kind of, we just started the class, so I'm just starting to get it, but I really wanna find a way to integrate that into some of our, I mean, we're at the Conscious Leadership Academy, right? And reflecting on one's consciousness, which lives on after we die, and what that means, you know, what, what Henry has brought, the gifts that he's brought to me, working with that through my physical, emotional, mental body, how I can use that to better support my teaching and to better support some of the work I'm doing around leadership development is really important to me. And that's, that's, uh, that's what I'm working on now. I absolutely love that. I feel like the kind of the beauty and, and being in leadership and and having this be something that you've been practicing for so long is to be able to make those connections where I don't know that I ever would have been able to make a connection like that where it's like this experience that I had that's so personal and so raw and so almost mystical in a way right and then be able to attach that to how we connect with each other and how we can like you said you know heal the collective wound that we have in our society I'm I'm a little mind blown. Kendra's always the one mind blown during our podcast, but I'm mind blown today. <laughs> flipping the flipping the script. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. So I know with your professional work, it's been, you know, higher education leadership. Um, you've been a lead facilitator for us for the CLA and you do a lot of leadership work. And you mentioned that the focus of your work is shifting. Um, so we're all going to die, um, but our rest and relationship with death is largely about denial and fear and finality, which I think really doesn't feel quite right. Um, is this how you view death? And then also how might we as Westerners create a different relationship with death? Yeah, I I think, um, you know, and Henry and I did talk about dying, so uh, we didn't talk about it enough, but we we assumed he would go before I would because he was so much older. So we, so it wasn't like we, you know, didn't talk about it. We didn't really talk through all the possibilities though. And what exactly, we had a trust for each other that we would take care of each other if something happened. Um, But I do think, and I see it now with my own father and um, stepmother, I'm having the same experience. My, he has dementia. 
she has dementia, we have step siblings, you know, there's fear, there's frustration, there's an unwillingness to accept what's happening, uh, you know, on the part of some of the siblings. So, so I'm seeing it all play out in my, now my own family. And um, yeah, so, so what I think, as, as I mentioned earlier, is that death, for, for, for one thing, death is something that we all have in common. We're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't, we don't have to fear death because, well, there, for one, as we were talking about earlier, there is a life after death. So there's that. And from all indications, from even the research that's been done in this area, dying, the, the actual aspect of dying is very pleasant experience after you've passed. You know, there could be pain and suffering on the way. And that's the piece where I think if we do our work now individually, that experience of the pain, possibly the pain and suffering can be viewed a little bit differently. So I, what I learned, another, other things I learned from Henry was he was very, um, after he was immobile, he didn't talk much, but when he did, he was very kind. He told everyone he loved them. He um, would be meditating. The caregivers would say, are you meditating? And he would nod his head. If they talked too much, he did this and said, you're talking. <laughs> I mean, he, he had done his spiritual work. And so the way that he was exiting was very gracious. And I'm, I've seen others, including my dad, who's struggling a little bit with, with some of the pain and the suffering and the, the changes. You know, we change when we age. And I really think, so my, this is on a personal note, as someone who's now in my 60s, I'm doing my work now. I want to do that developmental work um, where I can, while I can. So when that time comes for me, that I can be fully present to the experience, even if it's painful, even if it's hard, even if there's suffering, I want to be fully present to it in a way that it teaches me something. You know, like dying is like, and caregiving that's it's like good medicine actually Mm -hmm. because there's so much that can be learned from that so I think we need to flip the script that it doesn't have to be a fearful experience it doesn't have to be uh, one that we um, don't want to engage in we can actually look forward to some of the opportunities for different kinds of learning which some people may say that's crazy and and I, I don't believe that you know I really believe that that there is so much to be learned from, from those experiences. I love that. You know, my, my grandmother is 88. What did I say last time, Kendra? 87. 87. <laughs> get it right. Cause she listens. <laughs> <laughs> my grandmother is 87 and she promised us that she would live until she's 101, which I mean, of course you can't promise that, but I'm holding on to that. So, <laughs> but you know, we are kind of preparing for that time and, she's, she's really my best friend. And when I was in the program at USD, I always joked that she was taking the classes vicariously through me because I would tell her about everything I learned. And, you know, she, I, I joked the other day that she's our third podcast host. Cause I think I talk about her almost every episode. <laughs> she's really like my guiding light. And so thinking about living a life without her, um, eventually, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like that sadness, that fear, that's, that really that feeling of like, how am I going to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And trying to have kind of more of an idea that 
I, you know, I think it, Peter Pan always says to die would be an awfully great adventure. And to try to hold a little bit of that curiosity and that openness of it's just a different, it's a different adventure. It's a different type of future. And that, you know, she's just moving on to the next part of her life. And mm-hmm. I mean, not yet, hopefully, but you know, when she does go or when somebody does go, it's like, they're moving on to the next step in their adventure and, and we'll follow along one day as well. Yeah. yeah. That reminds me of a quote by Ram Das: death holds a profound mystery, turn to it as an adventure. And if you don't know Ram Das, he had a stroke and he lived for many years aware that his body was changing and, you know, he just was still teaching. He was still, he was curious and he was learning himself, but it was such a profound opportunity for him to continue his teaching. Um, so I love what you just said uh, about your grandmother. That's, that's really amazing. So what is the lesson for the living while being with the dying and how can we use grief as a teacher for us as those who I guess are survivors and those who are preparing to die? Oh, preparing to die is the right way to say it. We're all dying. So we all should prepare. Okay. That's, but that's what living is all about. Yeah. Right. So living is about knowing that you're going to die and living more fully. So, you know, sort of the trite way to say is don't put off tomorrow what you could do today. You know, Mm -hmm. we all say that, but the, the, the deeper reflection into that is, yeah, do your work now. You know, grief, uh, another teaching is around grief and love. You know, you have deep grief because you had deep love. And so, you know, some people, the way they handle that is don't love. So then you don't have to grieve. Like, I'm not going to get close to anybody. I'm not because I don't want to lose them. But you're totally missing such a most amazing opportunity when you don't love deeply. Mm-hmm. And when you love deeply, you're going to grieve deeply. Right. And, and the, the, you know, grieving is hard and I still grieve. And there were moments during our talk today where I could feel the little lump in my throat and I could easily tear up, um, you know, but it gets easier. And, and the, there's still such uh, beauty in knowing that we love deeply and, and that's why the grief is, is present. And so I think, you know, the lesson for, well, there's so many lessons and some of which I've already talked about, but is to be, you know, live, live your life as fully as you can while you can, and to love as fully as you can while you can, and not just, you know, your partner or your family, but each other, like, to, that's that's like the secret sauce. That's the ingredient that people are just starting to talk about. Henry was talking about this 15 years ago. He brought it into leadership, actually, and we all looked at him like, what, Yuri, what? And now people are talking about the importance of love and not the, you know, the romantic kind of love, but a real deep love mm-hmm. for yourself and love for others in a way that, so back to Hugo's teaching, I feel you feeling me. That's what love is. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that deep connection, that deep, profound connection that we all can have, knowing that the one thing we all have in common is that we're going to leave this earth and our, our physical bodies are going to leave. Everybody has to die. <laughs> um, and that, that's just, to me, that's a real profound learning, that being present to that 
and um, being awake to that is just something that I think is uh, really important and, and an important learning that I that I carry with me as a result of dealing with dealing with loss and grief. Mm-hmm. I love that you said the deeper your grief is is because in relation to how deeply you loved. Um, I'm gonna try to get through this. Last year. I lost my cousin and it was very unexpected. Um, And last Christmas, he had just had a daughter. She was just over a year old by last Christmas. And it was a very sad holiday for me. And we haven't spent a Christmas together probably since I was 10, but we communicated. And especially after he had his child, we talked often just to see how he was adjusting to being a parent and and in life where he was before he passed. And I felt like it was wrong for me to have taken his death as hard as I did um, because I wasn't one of his brothers or his father, or his mother. And like, no, we weren't in the same proximity other than when my grandpa died. And for that 10 years before, but we, we were connected in communication and even in mentioning like how sad I was to my family last Christmas um, was uncomfortable because I, I felt not necessarily that they would would judge me, but like be bewildered as to like, how are you, you know, still so affected when this has been nine months now, you know, we know that he's gone. Um, but hearing you say that, now really hits me like it's just because I loved him so much and because we connected on so many levels and now he was young he was two years younger than me I'm 31 and now I have to go through life without that connection anymore whereas I thought we would have had 40 50 more years together to live and you know raise children and, and vacation and spend time and it was so quickly taken from me so thank you for that because I, I just never was able to to name like this is why I feel so strongly about it. And it was because I loved him so deeply. Even though like our relationship wasn't what people saw from the outside, I knew what it was. Mm-hmm. And that's all that matters. Mm. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. Yeah. But that's beautiful. Yeah. And you can still have a relationship with him, which is different. Yeah. I think that's the thing that when you were talking about that Kendra, it makes me think about imposter syndrome. So my brother passed away last year in October. And then right after that, my two weeks later, my uncle passed away. And I was not super close with my brother, my stepbrother, and I I he grew up in Alaska. I'm down in California. We, you know, we would see each other when I would go to visit my dad in the summers and stuff like that, but we weren't, we weren't close. But I think part of my grief around him passing away was number one, the loss of potential relationship, mm-hmm. the, the loss of kind of the past memories that we have. And then also the grief for my stepmom and for my stepsisters. Um, you know, I really felt so profoundly sad for them and knowing what they were going through. And that's kind of a hard thing to explain to people mm-hmm. when you're really upset and, and people, well, you know, my mom would be like, well, you didn't really know him. And I'm like, yeah, but 
I know what my stepmom is feeling or, you know, maybe I don't necessarily know that I haven't felt it before, but I can imagine how she's feeling. I can imagine how my stepsister is feeling. And that makes me so much more sad and kind of feeling that like, am I allowed to feel this way? Like, am I, am I wrong for feeling so strongly? Um, and kind of having to, to struggle with that, like, yeah, my feelings are valid and, and it's okay to have those feelings. And I'm not an imposter for feeling, you know, this deep, profound grief, um, over somebody who I, you know, I didn't have a great relationship with. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, of course. It's the, I feel you feeling me, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the experience. I mean, we also grieve for, you know, people are dying now, you know, and I'm sure both of you at different times have felt grief over that, you know, it's, uh, I think that kind of grieving is, of course, so powerful. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes. Yeah. Thanks. So I know Kendra kind of brought up the holiday and we're currently in a holiday season, which I know the holidays are hard for a lot of people for a variety of different reasons, um, especially people who are dealing with grief and, and trying to stay connected with their, with their loved ones who are now past. So how, how do you deal with that around the holiday season and how do you stay connected? A hard one for me because, so our anniversary is December 24th. And of course, Christmas is the 25th and he died on December 26th. (laughs) So those three days are, are difficult. And I have only had one, you know, this is my second one coming up. Mm -hmm. So the first one I, um, on our anniversary, I had thought I was going to, I have his ashes still. And I, you know, we had talked, he and I had talked about where to put them. And so I thought I was going to do it that night, but I, well, it was raining for one. Um, and then I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to let go. So I actually had a meal with a good friend and, um, and then the next day I left my family's in the Midwest and I then spent the other two days with my family, which was important to me, but I took time, especially on the 26th to be quiet and to, you know, to, to reflect on our relationship and what that meant to me and to have a little conversation with him. And then um, this year I'll be, well, I actually don't know for sure, but I may be traveling and going back again. Um, It would be very hard for me to be completely alone uh, for those three days. Um, I'm sure I could manage, but but I I feel like I need to be with family. So, so my, I mean, I don't, I don't think giving advice is, is a good thing, but for me, you know, sometimes I just need to be alone. And my family understands that. And I just want to be, I, I, I'm an introvert and I need that alone time. And I can do that when I'm with them or without them. Um, but sometimes I need to be around loved ones, whether it's family or friends. And I think the importance of recognizing what your needs are and not meeting the expectations of what other people think, you know, like you were saying earlier, you know, how to grieve or how to be or how to be with your grief around the holidays it's important to really, you know, follow your heart and know what your needs are for that day or two days or three days or whatever those, those days are, because that's how you, that's how you stay in sort of inner alignment um, mm-hmm. with your felt sense of things. I love that. Yeah. 
That's that's just. I, I guess now I'm speechless because I'm just. Wow. Um. Well, shifting gears a little bit, we do ask a few questions at the end of each show. So, one of the first ones is, "How are you currently practicing mindfulness?" As I'm taking this class with uh, Thomas Hubel, I've been using his practice. That it's a it's a 25 minute mind. It you know it starts with a body, and he actually has. Um, I could I could do it with his video audio or I can do it on my own, but it's a process of coherence or inner I would say inner alignment with the physical, emotional, mental, and really doing a it's like a body scan in a way with your physical body and then your emotional felt sense and then your your you know like what's on your mind. And when we're meditating, we always have monkey mind, you know, but it's paying attention to all those. So so that's part of my my daily practice right now and I'm also you know I'm on sabbatical so I'm trying not to I think a lot of faculty maybe when they're on sabbatical they read 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 and think 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 and I'm trying not to do that because the kind of learning that I want to do has more to do with uh, intuition and openness and just being so I spend a lot of time just being and going for walks and sitting down with my dog and writing in my journal. And so those are, I'm, I'm very much um, really right now because of the space that I have really inundated. And sometimes I draw, I doodle. So I, I, um, I you know, that's uh, a form of reflection for me mm-hmm. too, and a, a form of a mindfulness practice that I, that I do. I like that. I think you're the first person that we've asked this question who has a, a very creative hands-on art practice. So that's, that's really nice. Yeah. So our last question of the day, what are you currently reading? Mm. So I have a lot of books. I'm the kind of person who like gets into like six books at a time and I read one and I go away from it. But the one that I'm really reading right now is, um, was recommended to me by uh, when I was in retreat with the, my Sufi community. And it's by Kathleen Dowling Singh, The Grace of Aging. And she also has another one called The Grace of Dying, but I'm reading The Grace of Aging. And uh, it's very good, very, very powerful and really um, lots of, just lots of reflections on the importance of all the things that we've been talking about. So I won't repeat it. And then I'm kind of, I'm listening slash reading um, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. I know y'all are doing um a little um what do you book call club. it the book club book club with the book cast but my yeah. good friend said I should read this one first before I read cast so Ooh. I decided to follow her lead and I'm so I'm getting through that before I go to cast that's cool I didn't know that is I didn't know anything about Isabel Wilkerson before we announced the book club book and mm-hmm. so I will also check out The Warmth of Other Sons. And I think my grandmother yeah. would love to read The Grace and Aging. Those, yeah, those both sound great. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Getz, for being a part of this uh, episode with us. I know grief and grieving is a difficult topic. And I thank you for your vulnerability and openness with us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for just... Um, well, for your insights and also for your sharings, they were very powerful. And it just feels like 
a nice uh, a nice connection and camaraderie with both of you. So I really appreciate the dialogue. Thanks for listening to season one of The Adjacent Self. We're so happy you're here. We will be back in January with more conversations about stepping into the best version of you. Make sure you subscribe to get notifications of new episodes. A five-star review on Apple Podcasts helps us to spread these conversations with more people interested in becoming their best selves. Happy holidays!